technology and of how you can mimic a fast while feeding the body with nutrients just captivated my imagination, you know? Because if you think about fasting, fasting is not a new trend. You know, every culture has fasting. Every people group, every country, every religion has a fasting component. Why? Now, even going beyond that, you look at <laughs> look at all the animal kingdoms. All the animals go through fasting all yeah. the time. In between any hunt, it's a fast. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, you know, feeding is an interruption of fasting rather than the other way around. A lot of times we feel like fasting. Oh my goodness, it's going to interrupt my eating. Most of our existence uh, as, as, as a species, we existed through periods of no food, of fasting, interrupted by, by feeding. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I'm Nicolette Richet. This is my show where I bring to you leading experts, scientists, researchers, and individuals who've actually been able to make the lifestyle changes to reverse their chronic diseases. The scientists and researchers talk about their patients and their clients who have done that. Uh, the medical doctors talk about the programs they have in place to help people achieve these results. And of course, I'm always here to talk to you about how I help my clients get those results by doing the Eat Real to Heal program. So this is a place to learn about how to reverse your chronic diseases so that you can reclaim your health and reclaim your life and achieve all the abundance in all the areas in the world that you could ever desire. So in your relationships, in your career, um, in your physical health, uh, in your spiritual growth, making sure that your body is healthy and free of these chronic lifestyle diseases. So diseases that are created by your lifestyle. You know, we often talk about alcohol and drugs and lack of sleep contributing to that. But where we really need to start talking about is where food plays that major role because our diet, the food that we eat every day, three meals a day and snacks and dessert is responsible for 90 to 97% of the chronic diseases that we are currently experiencing in developed countries. So it's really important to get your life back on track by returning to real food. Now, most people ask me what real food is, and we discuss that all throughout the podcast. Real food is real, clean, unprocessed, unrefined foods in their whole form, predominantly plant-based so that you can get all of the micronutrients and macronutrients that your body needs to actually not just be able to survive, but actually to be able to thrive. And what does that mean, thrive? To be, thrive means that you are nine years old and you are going to pass away in your sleep without any chronic diseases and medications um, on your bedside table. What does it mean to thrive? It means you have all the energy, <clears throat> excuse me, all the energy that you've ever wanted in your life to be able to go back to school, to be able to plan that wedding to be able to play with your kids at the playground to be able to do that half marathon or marathon or whatever physical activity it is that you want to do instead of coming home from work and sitting on the couch grabbing a bag of chips grabbing 
processed refined food, all those delicious, tasty snacks that actually will then contribute to feeding your illness. This is what it means to thrive. It means you have the energy to do everything that you want to do in life and more. And on today's podcast, we have Dr. William Shu, who I'm really excited to introduce you to. So Dr. William Shu, he's going to be talking about how to increase longevity, how to live longer, how to live healthier. Anytime we talk about living longer, it's about living longer free of disease. So it's important to know that. So Dr. William Chu, he has 20 years of a distinguished career as an endocrinologist at Harvard, Harvard's Jocelyn Diabetes Center. He left there to join Elnutra, who, which is what he's going to be talking about, in 2019 as the chief medical officer for Elnutra. And in his role, Dr. Shu leads the clinical development effort at Elnutra, making sure that the product is the best of the best, and he oversees the medical affairs department. Now, if you don't know what Elnutra is, you're going to learn about it all in this program. It's all about fasting mimicking, which is really important because everybody's talking about fasting. Everybody's talking about doing clients or diets and cleanses. And this is fasting mimicking, which is very different. So this is based on Dr. Walter Longo's work. So it's important to listen to this episode, really dive into what Dr. Shu has to say here, and then give it a try. Because if you're suffering from any chronic health conditions, if you're suffering from the inability to lose weight that is contributing to your chronic degenerative conditions, then, you know, if nothing else has worked, please try fasting mimicking. If you haven't already simply returned to an unprocessed whole foods lifestyle. So among Dr. William Shu's prior roles, he served as vice president at Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Like I mentioned, he was teaching uh, teaching affiliate at Harvard Medical School. He's responsible for his international education and healthcare advisory programs. I mean, his list goes on and on and on. And you are going to learn directly from the man who is an expert in endocrinology and metabolism straight from Harvard Medical School. So without further ado, here he is. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. It is my pleasure today today to welcome Dr. William Shu. Welcome, Dr. Shu. Well, thank you for inviting me here. So glad to be on your podcast. Uh, I love the picture behind you. What is that a picture of? This is a picture of the mountains in New Hampshire. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. And where in the world are you? Doctor, I'm actually based in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, yep. Nice, nice. And, you know, it's been an interesting couple of years here, a year and a half with COVID. We're not going to dive into that uh, today because we have some other very pressing issues to dive into all around uh, one of the uh, chronic diseases that are plaguing our nations, uh, which is diabetes. And this is an area that I definitely want to spend most of our time talking about, especially because so many of the comorbidity factors that are claiming the lives of COVID patients, you know, they people have diabetes and heart disease. And I think it's 
I think it's actually one of the topics we need to be addressing is how do we liberate people from these chronic lifestyle diseases so they can be robust and resilient when, you know, viruses like COVID or any other, you know, bacteria, fungi, you know, viruses, um, you know, hit us as they're going to do throughout, throughout life because we are human, we are nature, we're part of an ecosystem and, you know, we can't escape it all. But if we can build resiliency, then we have a much better standard with chance of withstanding, um, you know, a lot of these, these conditions that, that are inevitable and around us. So one of the pieces that I just want to start off with is helping people to understand what diabetes is. Because having worked in all levels of government, having worked with our public health agency in Canada, there are many different ideas about what causes diabetes, what diabetes actually is, and therefore it changes the way a lot of our elected officials um, and a lot of our governing bodies want to communicate the uh, the solutions, let's say the treatments for diabetes. So I just want to jump into that and yeah. get that from your perspective. It's a, I'm going to come out and say something already shocking. <laughs> yeah. I say that diabetes is actually a foodborne disease, but in a different way, right? So we think about foodborne illness, we're thinking about cholera, we're thinking about infectious disease. It's not. Diabetes certainly is not that. But if I were to trace back uh, at my own professional career, I, I remember year 2000, the turn of the millennium, that, that was a momentous period. Uh, if you look at all the social, social discussions around health, but by the way, year 2000 um, in the internet and the apps and the social media wasn't hot at all, right? That was actually the early stage. But if you look, were to look at all the, the journalism reporting around year 2000, that's when we, our country began to, to say, hey, wait a minute. The number of people with overnutrition now exceeds the number of people suffering from malnutrition on a global scale. And that's when we begin to kind of match the trend of obesity uh, versus the trend of diabetes. And we saw that was such a, a, a kind of overlap. The regions of the country that had high rates of obesity also were the regions of the country that had high rates of diabetes. And so epidemiologically, we began to link how weight which is a, really a function of multiple factors, including food intake, the activities and stress and a number of other things uh, uh, that became, they came into focus around year 2000. Now, uh, I mentioned that diabetes is really a foodborne illness because we actually didn't see this, this epidemic be before year 2000. We were beginning to see the trend going up, but we did not call it an epidemic. If you look around the world around year 2000 and, and continue to, to look at sort of the next, the ensuing years, the, the Middle East regions of the world were the hotbeds of diabetes. At the time, they already had as high as 15, 20% of diabetes. And then that wave continued to move eastward. And, and by today, you see more than half of the new cases of diabetes actually occur in the Asia Pacific Rim, 
And, and so you can see this is the global epidemic, yeah, although we don't talk about it anymore because now COVID is really the yeah. pandemic to, to, to speak about. But in the back, in the back, the smoldering diabetes epidemic continues to, uh, to wreck its havoc. And uh, so that brings us to where we are today. So let's let's talk about that now. Like when we were saying the Middle East, what was happening in the Middle East where we start to see, um, you know, in the um, yeah. South Asian, Asian Pacific Rim, what was happening in uh, to these individuals? Because a lot yeah. of these communities and individuals, they, you know, had been eating real food, uh, clean oh, food. Yeah. You know, they had there was a time when they also didn't have diabetes. So what was that shift? Yeah, I mean, one thing was very clear is it was not a massive genetic mutations that we were clear of, right? That it is not. It is not. Exactly. It could not have been. Because how could a genetic mutation impact the entire population yeah. within a short period of time? Think about that, right? Yeah. So it had to be something. Is, 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 is it environmental? I think a lot of people attributed to that. And later on, science also coined the term epigenetic phenomenon, meaning that the, the, the way that the environment shapes the expression of our genes. But again, the environment played a major role. What we came to understand is the oil boom, right, in the 1970s, also brought a change in lifestyle in that mid Middle Eastern region. People who used to have to walk for miles to get water or food now, because of the wealth in that region, um, they had access to literally a limited amount of food and that changes the body, right? It, it, it drove up the, the obesity rates in the country. And then we, we, we saw that early on in, in Europe. We saw it uh, in, in the United States, in North America. And then we began to see that shifting, right? Middle East over to Asia right now as the economy in Asia uh, was taking off. And so now we see this global uh, epidemic um, known as diabetes. And I think uh, when I was teaching in Asia, I taught 600 physicians uh, all about how to use real food to reverse diabetes. And I was brought over there uh, to meet with the Center for Chronic Disease Control, the Ministry of Health, and we traveled all around um, many parts of China. And it was interesting because you know, for example, breakfast in the hotels was this plethora of amazing plant-based food predominantly. And, you know, animal-based products were sprinkled in for sure, but not the way we do it here in the West. And, but the one thing I did notice though, is um, the amount of you, and you talked about the oil boom, meaning the petroleum oil boom, oh, which created yeah. wealth, which created, you know, this ability to bring food to your doorstep as opposed to having to go out and get it. But the other part that I noticed too was the amount of refined oil that smothered all of these amazing, delicious foods. And so when you talk about the oil boom as well, I mean, that's something that I'm noticing happening in my home country in Malawi, Africa, is also refined oils are also being, you know, marketed, the soybean oils, the canola oils, which they didn't also have before. And Malawi is seeing a boom in diabetes. So can we talk a little bit about um, 
how that wealth so we know it's lack of exercise you mentioned so food coming to people's doorstep but where does refined oil versus the refined sugar conversation like what does that look like from your perspective around diabetes and the research that you're doing yeah you know i think if if you look at the in a any agricultural societies around the globe uh, you notice that folks that used to be working in the fields they actually consume higher calories than modern Americans do because they needed the energy, right? They needed the calories to work the lands. So to taking China as an example, um, the calories, the traditional Asian rural diet, I mean, that's what most people were on, yeah. was very high in carbohydrate, for example, very low in, in, in protein, very low in fats because those were the more expensive uh, uh, food but the diabetes was less than 1% in the 1960s, 1970s, right? right? But if you look at across, that's in, let's say, a rural Canton, which is the southern province of China. But if you look across the, 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 the ocean and look into Hong Kong, which is, you know, 20, 30 miles right across uh, from mainland China, different economy, different level of prosperity back in the 1970s, the rates of diabetes were five, six, seven times higher, right? And when you look at the genetic makeup across Hong Kong and Canton, it's the same ethnic group. Mm -hmm. So there weren't a huge genetic differences between the two groups, but because the, the lifestyle, the, the, the enrichment of the food, right? And, and the lack of exercise and so on and so forth certainly put the Hong Kong uh, people at a much higher risk for developing diabetes. But I think the, the debate about which component of the food contributed to diabetes, uh, I suspect is one that, that is maybe overly simplistic because mm -hmm. there's not one component, think about it, right? It's the concentration, the density of the calories that we're able to consume uh, in, in small quantity, right? In, in the old days, you have to eat a large quantity to get a lots of calories <laughs> but these days we just have need a little bit to pack in all that calories and that's essentially what's available in a lot of the industrialized countries now i think what's also exciting about about the the sort of the debate around what led to the obesity or what type of food certainly you know refined oil refined sugar um, but also we're also adding another level of discussion uh, as to not only what we're eating, but the timing of our eating as well. That's kind of that ushering this whole debate and new knowledge and new era about intermittent fasting around prolonged fasting or what we call periodic fasting. It's not only about what you eat, but also the timing of your diet, the timing of your meals. Yeah, I like this point that you bring up, and I definitely want to get into this intermittent fasting discussion, um, and especially how we apply it into the context of our life uh, consistently, because at the end of the day, it's about the things that we can do consistently, not just for two weeks or not just for a month. Um, but going back to what you mentioned, um, I think it's really important for listeners out there, because we are we do want to reduce everything down to just like one simple pill, one simple answer. And I hear this all the time. I hear this from, you know, directors of diabetes organizations that we just got to cut out all the sugar. And, you know, and it's, 
it's so important to hear what Dr. Shu is saying here. What you're saying is that it's it's the it's everything that we're doing all in one time, right? So the refined oils, the refined sugars, the refined foods, um, the processed foods, the amount of food that we're eating. Um, and so we have to stop talking about it just being so simplistic that it's just sugar because what is sugar even, you know, we should, we need to change our language. And I get that not everybody has a degree in biochemistry, but I'm pretty sure as humans, we can all know and understand that, you know, when we talk about sugar, there's many different ways to talk about it, whether it's refined, whether it's in a whole fruit form, like a nectarine or a peach or a banana versus, you know, baking from scratch, you know, a lot of people think baking from scratch is healthy, but I mean, ultimately you're just using all the refined products and putting it into a bowl and you might turn it into a, a beautiful cake or you might turn it into a donut. Some people might think the cake is healthier than the donut, but at the end of the day, it's still all the same refined products. And so when we talk about sugar in that context, you know, that's very different from the whole nectarine, mm -hmm. right? If we were to serve that as dessert. So I think that, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that it's the accumulation of all of these different things. But jumping into the fasting, because that's an area that um, it, it's still a hot topic. Um, you know, COVID has definitely inundated the media with, you know, talks about that and kind of pushed fasting off to the side a little bit. But, you know, just prior to COVID, I mean, fasting was everywhere. It was being talked about. So you are a specialist in endocrinology. And I, before we jump into the fasting, I just want to understand because diabetes is an endocrinological issue as well. So can you just talk about how our hormones and diabetes are connected? Right. So, um, you know, hormones uh, are these uh, chemical messengers in the body that regulates the way every organ functions. And, and the, the mediator of that uh, of the hormones are generally traveling through the blood uh, instead of through the nerves. And that's what separates us from the endocrinologist from the neurologist, because all of the chemical messengers are flooding in every, um, you know, sort of in every capillaries in, in the blood. And uh, diabetes being a, a dysfunction of how the body uses a very important hormone called the insulin. Insulin is a hormone by which the body can use sugar as a fuel. Now, every cell needs, needs to use a fuel and, and sugar in the form of glucose is the most uh, preferred uh, in, for many organs, a preferred uh, fuel for cell, for cellular function. Well, and, it's efficient, much more efficient than using fat, for example, because right. it can use fat as well. Absolutely. The body can use many different uh, substances as a fuel, but um, uh, if you look at uh, throughout human history, especially the later uh, history, human history, agriculture has brought on carbohydrate really as the main source of fuel rather than in the hunting and gatherer days. Right. So the carbohydrate really has been sort of a main stable. Uh, but remember, even though that has been uh, um, um, sort of as the main stable for many hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, but people did not have diabetes. So it's not the carbohydrate alone that were the issues. The people were moving about and, and so on and so forth. Right. So, but anyhow, let's come back to the diabetes aspect. So, 
Uh, so insulin is that hormone that allows the cells to use glucose, which is really the most basic unit of, of carbohydrate as a fuel. And uh, people develop diabetes when either the body stops making insulin, that's one situation, or when the body cannot use the, uh, uh, the insulin very efficiently. So let me give you one example. You know, we often talked about small car being more fuel efficient, right? You add one gas, uh, one gallon of gasoline, it runs 40 miles, 50 miles, right? But when, if, when you switch the car from a small car to a big SUV, what happens? The fuel efficiency goes down. That means one gallon of gas only runs 15, 20 miles. So it's the same thing with our human body. As the body gets larger, as we get older, we, we put on pounds, we put on weight. And the larger body size reduces our efficiency in using insulin. And we use the term insulin resistance to convey the concept. So the same amount of insulin that your body can make now does a lot less work than it used to be when your body was smaller. And so most of us in, in the Western country, and right now, actually, it's a global issue. It's not even just Western countries. People are gaining more weight, right? As overweight and obesity becomes a bigger problem, we have more insulin resistance um, uh, in our society. And so the body cannot use the, the insulin that you make uh, in a very efficient way. And that's in fact what's happening to our body. Thank you for drawing that relationship because you know I get as well that most of us when we're taking biology in high school and chemistry in high school, we just wanna fast forward through a lot of this to get right to the exam, to graduate so we can get on with life. But, you know, if I can encourage any listeners out there who are young and studying this right now, please pay attention to how your body works, because it's truly phenomenal. And, you know, it's important to understand that, you know, as an endocrinologist, especially for yourself, when you focus on hormone health, you know, hormone health is only one aspect of the whole picture of how the human body works. Um, and we're probably going to get into that in a little bit more as we get into the fasting mimicking piece. So I'd love to jump into that because you joined El Nutra in 2019 as their chief medical officer. And how did that come about that um, you started researching fasting and then and got hired on and joined their, their team there? Yeah, I actually um, wasn't looking for it. I was a professor at an academic center and I, I was taking care of patients. I was doing research. And I mean, this is kind of a little bit of a personal journey, right? So I, I wanted to become a, a physician because I wanted to help people to, to live better and live more healthy. And I, I thought the way to do this is by taking care of them one-on-one, one -on -one, right? In, inside of the physician's office or that you go inside the lab and you discover something new so you can help more people. And then, so, and then you know, 10 years into it, I, I realized that the, a lot of the research that we did, it takes so long to translate into, into practice, right? Yeah. Because you start with mice data and then you start with small pilot human data. And then, then by the time you translate into humans, I mean, maybe you, you retire by then, right? So that's, yeah. that's the issue. So I say, well, okay, you know what, maybe, instead of just, uh, you know, get cooped up in, in, in the lab, maybe we need to work. I, I said to myself, I need to join an organization, right? A society like American Diabetes Association, serve on different committees. Maybe we should write guidelines. Yeah. 
if I get to a point where I can write national guidelines, okay, now physicians don't have to read the regional research paper. They just say, oh, the American heart says, the American diabetes says this, now we should do this, right? So I was very proud. I was saying, hey, you know, we made it. We, 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 we got on the guidelines committee. We can make impact, you know, on the, on the, on the diabetes world. And later on, I realized that, hey, you know, you could, you could set all the guidelines you want, but doctors are so busy. <laughs> Every patient is different. You know, and, and uh, guidelines may not be applicable to every ethnic background, every age, every gender, every whatever, right, backgrounds you have. And so I say, well, you know what? So, okay, so if guideline wasn't the way to do this, then maybe I should build the system. And that's where I had the, really the, the fortune of, of uh, serving as, as vice, uh, vice president at Johnson Diabetes Center, where we because of the reputation of the center, we were able to share our expertise all around the globe. So I had to travel to the Middle East, to uh, the Caribbean countries, to Asia, Eastern Europe, and help people, help governments to train physicians, and build hospitals and design diabetes programs all around. And even in the country, we, we had 37 affiliates at that time. So we had a lot of opportunity to share our expertise. So I said, hey, if you build the system, they'll come. And the clinicians and the patients that come to the systems, they would have benefit from the system yeah. that we kind of created. So they don't, they don't have to read the novel uh, uh, research because we will incorporate all the new ideas into the programs. So I was really, really proud and saying, wow, that was great. You know, we're making huge impact. And then, then the world changed. There's something called the iPhone, right? Yes. And the internet become booming, right? And then I say, well, what happened you could build the system there and people were being taken care of while they come to see you in the center. But what happens to people in between the visits? Yeah. They're on their own. I mean, you don't see your doctor every week, do you? I mean, you see your doctor every couple of months. Couple of years, never. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do in between? Yeah. So I say, hey, look, you know, technology is really the solution, right? So, so I, 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 began to look into digital health really as the solution, uh, you know, where you could, you know, the, the, you could gain access to knowledge, you can gain access to information and support from your uh, coaches, your dietitians, from your physicians. And I mean, that was bef before the COVID days. Now everybody's doing telemedicine, everybody's doing digital yeah. apps, right? And then I remember my page, uh, one of my good friends challenged me and said, well, you haven't done anything. Else. What do you mean? I, I've done all these things, right? He said, no, no, no. Look, if you're able to come up with a product that actually helps people, yeah, and it doesn't matter when, when you're retired, <laughs> when you're on vacation, when you can't see your patients, that product can help hundreds of millions of people, if not billions yeah. of people. Yeah, and that's when 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 uh, you know I I really came across uh, Alnutra as a company and the uh, the amazing technology and uh, of how you can mimic a fast while feeding the body with nutrients just captivated my imagination, you know, because you, if you think about fasting, fasting is not a new trend. You know, every culture has fasting. Yeah. Every people group, every country, every religion has a fasting component. Why? Now, even going beyond that, you look at, <laughs> look at all the animal kingdoms. 
all the animals go through fasting all yeah. the time. It, between any hunt, it's a fast. Exactly. Yeah, in fact, you know, feeding is an interruption of fasting rather than the other way around. A lot of times we feel like fasting, oh my goodness, it's going to interrupt my eating. Most of our existence as, as, as a species, we existed through periods of no food, of fasting, interrupted by, by feeding. I now, like it, that. It, so I like this way. I just want to make sure we really stress this point. So in our human existence, food and eating has been the interruption of our just regular normal fasts. And I get this being that I'm African and Indian. And that's how the villagers in our town lived because sometimes you'd have to wait for the rains to come you know and so that's your fasting period and you maybe ate a few things like this is where the intermittent fasting comes in but calories went down until the rains came grew everything and then you were able to eat in abundance but then again enter into yet another fast and so I really love this piece because we're so hyper, hyper, hyper motivated by food in our society that it's almost, and I hear this all the time, people can't go four hours without saying that they're starving. And I usually say to them, I have a feeling that you're not starving. I'm pretty sure if you miss this meal coming up and the next one and the next one and the next one, you still would not starve. And I think it's important for people to understand that you are not starving. And in fact, you're probably overfueled, which is one of the biggest contributors. So I just wanted to really touch on that point. Um, so with El Nutra, can you please explain, because you've mentioned it a few times, just, just explain to the audience what El Nutra is. Yeah, so it's a company that has a technology uh, that's called the fast mimicking diet. This technology was actually, the root really started in the, at, at the University of Southern California by Professor Walter Longo. Yeah. He was really studying what the intersections are between fasting, nutritional longevity. And through a lot of the work in, in worms, uh, you know, he began to look into, into what the implications in humans. And he discovered, um, uh, you know, really an age-long truth, right? So age-old truth that, that fasting could be very good for humanity. The question is how? Right. How do you get people like us, who are so used to have abundance of food to actually go on a fast. It's very difficult. I mean, if we go on to a conference, even for physicians, a medical conference, if they don't feed us food, forget it. We say that's a bad conference, right? <laughs> and, and so there has to be a pragmatic solution to, to leverage the benefits of fasting. And so through uh, 20 years later, right, through funding from the NIH, National Institutes of Health, which are federally funded programs, um, uh, Professor Longo was able to come up and develop this technology called the fasting to begin diet technology. Okay, this is a, a set of technology that allows people to consume nutrients, and yet the cells would not recognize them as as food, so the cells stay in a fasting state. This is actually a very amazing technology, but, but allow me to explain it, uh, for a second here. Uh, most people think fasting is just no food, right? I mean, hey, every, everyone's definition is like, hey, I'm not eating, I'm fasting, okay. But you think about it, you know, there is actually um, 
there's a possibility of alternative definition. If you don't eat carbohydrates, right? What does your body do? The body needs fuel. So it's gonna to, you know, it's gonna take other food that you eat, for example, proteins and fat, and it's gonna use it as a fuel. And in the process, you're gonna produce ketones, right? As you're burning fat, for example, you produce ketones. And, and that's very similar to the process of fasting because what happens in, uh, during fasting state is your body burns the fat that you have in the body and produce ketone. Uh, and so that that's kind of sort of, it brings about this over the last 10 years, the popularity of ketogenic diet. But I think the fasting mimicking diet goes even further. It, it, it really taps into the, the molecular definition of fasting. See, inside the body, every cell needs to know is, is there food coming or no food coming? Because if there is nutrient coming, the cell is going to say, well, I'm going to replicate. I'm going to grow. But if there's no food coming, the cell say, no, 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 there's no food coming. I got I to gotta protect myself right now. There's going to be a stretch of time. I got to recycle. I have to rejuvenate because I don't know when food is coming. I have to take the older components of the cells and recycle it so it becomes new. And this process this mechanism, survival mechanism, existed in simple organisms such as yeast, to fruit flies, to rodents, to mammals, to humans. That protective mechanism during times of no food has been conserved all throughout different species. Now, when, when the human body fasts, yes, there's no food. Yes, the body is burning fat. But more importantly, on the cellular level, every cell says that they, you know, they have these sensors. These are ears and eyes that sense whether there is proteins, amino acids, carbohydrates, sugar uh, in, in the body, right? When they say, hey, there's no food coming in, the cells go into that, the protective phase. Now, this, uh, this uh, observation that the cells go into uh, the, these con conservation phase um, it's described very, very well by, uh, by uh, Professor Otsumi, who won the 2016, uh, year, uh, year 2016 Nobel Prize in physiology or in medicine. He described this process called autophagy, autophagy. It's a process by which, as I explained earlier, the cells take the older components and make them into new components when the time, during the time when there is no food. Now, we can explain this um, uh, when we think about like a, a family finance, right? So let's say, you know, you have a one day or two days uh, with no income. You say, okay, that's okay. We can stand this. Let's just transfer money from the bank, right? Okay, a little bit of saving. Okay, you know, $10, $20, $50. We can withstand that. But what if, what, what if income doesn't come in in the next week? You say, oh, okay, well, we got to be careful now. What about the income doesn't come in in the next month? Then you say, oh, we've got to change the way we spend money. Yeah. We've got to change the way we manage. Our, our thing, you know, we cannot throw away things anymore. We've got to recycle them. We've got to use them. We've got to be creative, right? We cannot go out and buy new stuff. We've got to use what we have. That's exactly what the body does. That's what every cell does. Now, so this fast and mimicking uh, um, technology is made possible 
uh, through 20 years of research where, where if you're able to give the nutrients below the detection level of these ears and eyes, these nutrient sensors, right? If you give them enough nutrients, but, but below the detection threshold where the cell says that there is food, that means, right? That means the cells are sensing there's no food. If you're able to get to that stage with the specifically formulated uh, nutrients, then you can actually mimic a fast without so, starving the body. So let's talk about what the benefit of mimicking that fast or fasting in general. And then I want to know the difference between the fast versus the mim mimicking fast and, and why we feel and why El Nutra felt that they had to do that versus, you know, what the, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the center founded by like Dr. Clapper, um, True North, where they're just like, that's a strict yeah. fast and yeah. it can go on from like 30 days or 60 days. Yeah. So we'll jump into that. But what is the benefit of putting the cell into this conservation stage? Because I think this yeah. is what the important point is for people to know why they want to put their body in this state. Yeah. So so that's a good question. So I, I'm going to... I'm going to cite two different angles here. Okay, mm -hmm. so from from I wanted to to cite the clinical study results, yeah. and then I wanted to show you a, a, a concept from 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 East, which is very easy to to understand, right? East, everybody has East uh, at home if you bake, right? Yeah. So you know you could easily take a handful of East and you add hydrogen peroxide to it. When you add it to to the East you lyse the yeast, you would kill the yeast because of this, uh, because of hydrogen peroxide could, could lie because of the radicals, because the, uh, the sort of uh, uh, the mechanism of, of, of penetrating into the cells, right? So it's a toxin, if you will. Right. But think about this. Uh, if you starve the yeast for a couple of days, you cannot kill the yeast with the same concentration anymore. You got to go higher level. Because now the yeast go in, goes into uh, into a protective state. Mm. We call it the stress resistant pathway. Instead of growth, they say, "Hey, there's no food. Let's protect." Right? right? And we see that in nature all the time. When there's no food, right, <laughs> the organism just goes into the hibernation, that protective mode. So that's in fact what what Professor Otsumi was observing, right, in, in his Nobel Prize uh, discovery. Take it to humans now. Now, look, we're no yeast, right? We were a lot more complicated than yeah. yeast. So I, I'm not going to uh, say that we're exactly that. This is what happens in the body. But, but this is what we know. Through a research we published in 2017, you know, we were able to demonstrate people who do five days of the fasting mimicking diet per month, simply five days a month. And for the rest of 25 days, you go back to your normal diet. And you just repeat that five-day cycle, month one, month two, month three. So 15 days, 15 days in a three months time. Not a lot of effort, right? No. It's able to generate benefits for different levels. The first level is that, that people lose weight, of course, right? With fasting, of course, it's probably the fast, it's a fast way to lose weight, right? Yeah. You're not eating, right? Even though with fasting moving diet, there's some calories, but, but you're still burning a lot of the fat. And a lot of the weight loss is due to fat loss. Now your audience may not uh, realize that uh, the weight loss derived from fasting is very different than the weight loss derived from just a low calorie diet. 
uh, in what way? Well, because fasting is a stress, right? When you when you fast, the body actually is in a, in a stressful state. So that stress hormone actually helps to preserve lean body mass while the body taps into the belly fat, which is the stubborn fat in the central trunk there and burn them as a fuel. As opposed to a low calorie diet, it's, it's like a slow drain of calories, right? From our body. So it's an equal opportunity burner. It burns the fat, it burns the muscle, right? It burns the organs, I mean, right? So, so your muscle is gonna lose, so there's gonna be some muscle loss in a right. prolonged calorie restriction. So I'll give, give you one example, you know, uh, if you look at uh, a leopard, you know, in between the hunts, if the leopard were to lose its lean body mass during between every hunt, it's going to make that animal very maladaptive. Yeah. It's that species would not have survived, but instead during the fast, right? Instead of, of the leopard being tired and say, oh, I'm so hungry, I have no strength. No, it perks up. I got a hunt. Hypervigilant, right? There is increased mental energy of the animal, right? And then the, the, the lean body mass is preserved because it's got to be able to hunt. It, that stress maintains that, that the lean body mass. And what it does is burns those fat that, that are stored in the belly, in the butt, buttock, in other parts of the a body as a fuel. That is a survival mechanism where, where we're trying to tap into through fasting. So it, it, does this same survival mechanism kick in with keto diets? Because keto diet is extreme fat loss as well. And but is it doing the That's same thing? That's a really thing? good question. The, the, the issue, I think what I see, the difference between the keto diet and the fasting intermittent diet is keto diet, you have to be on it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you have pro proteins. Yeah. Even though it's low, low on carbohydrate, you have proteins. So the cells, you know, when they decide, do I grow or do I go into this protective pathway, it's going to say, well, there's nutrients still coming in. So it's not a complete shutdown of the nutrient sensing. Yeah. So that's why you need to be on it for weeks, sometimes even months to see benefits. Yeah. But, but a complete water fast or a fasting mimicking diet, it shuts down all the nutrient sensing. So the body is forced to enter into that protected that, state, a protective uh, mechanism. Yeah. And I think that's an important piece for people to understand the whole reason why we are doing this is to force the body into that protective mechanism, which again, builds resiliency, protects the body, um, you know, and, and what are some other things that happen around yeah. that protective state as well? Yeah. So, so I, I began by talk, talking a little bit about the, the weight loss where, where a lot of us need to have that yeah. jump star that kickstart in the weight loss and the weight loss preserves lean body mass and burns the, the, the belly fat, right? So that's benefit number one. Benefit number two is in contrast to low calorie diet, in contrast to even intermittent fast, a, a, a periodic fast, a longer fast, a fast lasting longer than two days gets the cells to respond, okay? It's sufficient stress uh, when you go above two days, it, it gives you sufficient stress where the cell says, oh my goodness, we're really not gonna see food for the next couple, you know, who knows when. Let's begin to activate the autophagy process. And we know autophagy isn't gonna happen 
in a in a in a 16 hour fast or 15 hour fast or 14 hour fast is simply not short enough and not long enough and the stress is not big enough to cause it to change much like you know as i mentioned earlier if you don't have income for a day or two you're not going to change your lifestyle you're just going to bear through it right exactly right? and so again for people for listeners you know understanding autophagy is really important because it is also a detox mechanism is it not right it's where the body consumes its own tissue matter um, and then and then utilizes it so that it's almost getting so it's detoxifying as well as conserving the body at the same time yeah so that's really the second benefit right with yeah. a longer period of fast you're getting to the cellular impact yeah. And, and that is actually very different than intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, I always said, it's like our weekend clean, clean cleaning, you know, house cleaning. During the weekend, we, we might sweep, we might vacuum, we might do a little bit of something. But spring cleaning is where you get to the curtains, you get the, you shampoo the carpet. I mean, you don't do that on a weekly basis, no. right? And so that prolonged fasting does have that cellular impact. That's number two. Right. The, the third benefit of a longer fast, like the fasting mimicking diet, is on the emotion, right? So as I mentioned a, a little earlier, after five days of not consuming the food that has captivated you <laughs> or captured your imagination, it changes your relationship to food, yeah. okay? After five days, the most common question people often ask is, Oh my goodness, I feel so good. My energy's up. Uh, am I hungry? Yes, I could be a little hungry, but now I want to eat, make sure I eat good food. Yeah. Because I've done all this. My body's clean now. My body's like a, a ringed out sponge, is ready to absorb. What do I eat now? And so there is definitely that the sense of increased mental energy, the sense of mental clarity. And then we, we do see that in many other users of uh, fasting mimicking diet. And then the fourth one. Now, can I, I ask you a bit about that mental clarity there? Um, are there studies to show the source of the mental clarity? Because I've read many different things about that. One is that almost like being like the leopard who's like now on hyper alert for food. And so some people are like, oh, I'm so clear because I'm so clean. Or is it I'm so clear yeah. because I'm now going to hunt um, and I'm aware that I can't be on a fasting mimicking diet forever you know and you shouldn't be on it forever that's yeah. really the beauty of it right fasting yeah. is not something you do forever i mean yeah. and that's why in our study why it was designed for five days because you need that period of refeeding right yeah. as a balance but i'll come back to that in a second that's actually a, a really important point um but but what, what i want to say is the mental clarity comes from the fact, I think there's probably a couple of areas. One is, is um, it's really a, a, a mental a, a mind shift, right? Yeah. After five days of not having that thing, whatever thing that's, that's kind of controlled you, you're ready for a new start, right? People and I think- This is an accomplishment. 
Yes. And I think you're, I think a hundred percent, this is so important for people to do. I think this for some people, it'd probably be even harder than running a marathon for them because of the fact that we have such a relationship to food in our society where a it's abundant all the time. We use it to celebrate and have parties. You know, we um, buy all of this processed refined food for somebody's birthday when, you know, like we use food in such strange ways in our society. A lot of us are using it for, um, you know, binge eating to make ourselves feel better. Some people are truly, they have a food addiction. You know, we have all of these uh, emotional, uh, like hooks into our food that, and, and I know it, the same applies to alcohol. I gave up drinking alcohol a couple of years ago and I wasn't even a big drinker. And it was hard to give it up because of these societal pressures because of my own. It made me realize like, oh, maybe I do go grab a glass of wine because I'm bored or because I'm, you know, anxious or whatever the emotion is. But, you know, are we really grabbing the alcohol truly because we love the taste of alcohol or is it actually for a million other reasons are we having that meal or that extra slice of cake or that uh, you know sometimes a whole cake for some people you know it you know and in a lot of times it is an emotional societal pressure versus i just need nutrients so i love this third piece about the fasting mimicking because i think for a lot of people the the joy that comes out of doing that from knowing that you can do it is very very powerful and to cut some of those ties that we have to food. And I, th I think um, uh, there's definitely uh, undoubtedly that psychological impact, but I wouldn't also uh, rule out um, there could be a biological uh, basis for this as well, right? So now we need more research to, to verify this, but think about the process of fasting. It actually affects every cell in the body right now it's, it's like for example a company downsizing <laughs> you know when the company it goes bankrupt what does it do i mean it affects everybody everybody every department's budget right it doesn't just preferentially affect one department and that is just minor stress when there's a big financial crisis so when you fast for a couple of days it's a it's a big you know energy crisis right for the body so every cell, including the brain in this case, needs to respond to the stress of fasting. Yeah. And so whatever you know, happens on the cellular level, it results in that increased mental energy, mental yeah. clarity. Yeah. And I did the fasting mimicking diet. I love Dr. Walter Longo's work. And, um, and you know, we had, um, we've had other people on our podcast who have talked about El Nutra. And so I was like, you know what, I got to give it a try. Everybody was asking me about it. And this third point that you bring up around the emotion, I mean, it definitely brought up lots of stuff for me. And it was fascinating. It was like an experiment. How am I going to respond to minimizing my calories? And I, you know, there was a point where I'm like, I need to eat that little package of soup right now and warm it up. And I was like, I need it. I need it. And then by the third day, I was like, do I really need it right now? Could I go an extra 10 minutes without it? Like, and so it brought up a lot of things for me. And then also definitely um, made me, I think a little bit more flexible on this need for three meals a day at certain times. And, you know, just definitely changed my relationship to, to, you know, how I've structured my eating in the past. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned this flexibility. Um, it, it's, it, it really brings up another concept here. 
um, you know, when you first go exercise, right? Jogging, yoga, you know, weightlifting, what happens? I mean, the next day your muscle are sore, right? You're like, oh my goodness, right? First time. But if you continue to do it, what happens? The body becomes more flexible. Yeah. Muscles become stronger. Same thing with fasting, you know, with the alteration of fasting followed by feeding with good, clean food, what happens? You become more metabolically flexible. Yes. Right. This idea of metabolic flexibility that you, you're able to go straight into fat burning mode without going through that really difficult period of transition that can be trained with each cycles of fasting and it does right. get even easier. Yeah, no, interesting, interesting. Um, I definitely am going to go back and do it again uh, because life got busy and so I wasn't able to do the third or second or third one. Um, we were traveling a lot and things happened and which were probably all just excuses, but now I definitely want to go in and, and uh, try for at least three, three or four times. Um, okay, so the fourth aspect of, uh, of intermittent fasting, so we've talked about the losing weight, and which is really important for people to understand, we're not losing weight because we want to be supermodels, we're losing weight because obesity and chronic disease are one in the same, they're connected. And this excess fat around our waist is an indicator for poor health. So it's really important that people understand you're not losing weight to, you know, fit into that bikini, which is a nice benefit, but it truly is because um, you, you, being concerned for your health, overall health and its relationship to chronic lifestyle diseases. So we have losing weight, getting the cells to respond and activating um, autophagy. And then we also have the emotional behavior change, that mental emotional um, yeah. change. And then the fourth one. It's very, very interesting. Uh, you know, I kind of separate the emotion from the behavior. Um, emotion is the driver, behavior is the end result. Right. And what we often see at the end of a five-day fasting mimicking diet, the most common question people ask is, believe it or not, what should I eat now? Yeah. Well, why would you ask that? But because now I understand the way I've been feeding myself, my goodness, I need to change. So the number one question that consumers have after five days, what do I eat on the sixth day, right? Not like what kind of junk food should I eat, but rather like how do I jumpstart a new lifestyle? Right. I mean, that's amazing, right? Uh, as an endocrinologist, we've been working with, with a lot of you know, people who have suboptimal health. I love to hear that as a, as a clinician that my patient come in and ask me, yeah. what should I do? I, I'm eager to change my lifestyle. And, and, and so it's so much so that, that we get so many questions on what, what can I eat that we actually, El Nitra actually went out and got a piece of land in New Jersey, Lone Valley, New Jersey, where we bought seeds from the blue zone regions of the world where people live, a lot of people live, uh, you know, greater than hundred years old. We took out, we took some of these uh, seeds. Uh, they are never been genetically modified. There are hundreds and sometimes even olives for you know some of some of a lot of these ancient grains that, that have been there for hundreds of hundreds of years we brought it back to 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 um to new jersey we plant it we use it the most sustainable way to farm it with no herbicides no pesticides and we use aquaponics use fish and plants coexisting together as the fuel for the plants from farm to tables in 48 hours. 
It's amazing. We needed this because all of the customers, many of the customers are asking, what, what's the most clean food uh, you, you know, I can eat after, uh, after a five-day fasting mimicking diet? No, and I love this. And I love the aquaponics piece as well. When I was in China, they took us to this beautiful region of Kangbao in Northern China. And it was phenomenal because we just saw hundreds of acres of organic farmland that was growing food and all for in favor of reversing type two diabetes. So they built a massive, massive center where people from all over China um, and Hong Kong can come and attend this center to learn all about reversing diabetes. But they also took us to this incredible, I thought it was a, it was a recreation center, you know, and because it was a huge, massive, massive, massive swimming pool, but with all these bridges going across of it, so we walked on all these gorgeous paths and there was pillars coming out of the pool and <laughs> all the seedlings were attached to the pillars. So, you know, probably 30 foot high walls and every inch of wall was covered in little tiny seedling cups that just hooked onto the wall. And then the fish were swimming in the pool. And yeah. so I had this vision of, you know, all of our recreation centers here, we go swim in the lakes and we leave the recreation center pools, take out the chlorine, put the fish in there. And then they start neutrifying little seedlings. The seedlings get transferred to these organic farms. And then we have food security and people eating really healthy. So it's actually happening on a large scale right now in China. Yeah. We just need to get that happening here on a large scale. And I know that El Nutra is doing this. In, is, is that the work that El Nutra is doing with Jennifer Maynard's farm? Oh, that's right. For, yes. uh, for our nutrition for longevity. Exactly, uh, yeah. yeah that's, our, that's our pride and joy. And, and it's really, if you think about, right, you know, everybody talks about fasting, but the refeeding period is as important. You know, so for important. example, you could be the world-class athletes, but if you don't rest right, if you don't nourish right, yeah. you know, all that, uh, the, you know, those exercises become just damages without healing. Exactly. Right? So same thing with fasting. I think, you know, it's very important that we, we emphasize uh, how important eating right after fasting is. And, and Nutrition for Longevity offers that opportunity to, to provide the most clean food. Yeah, no, and I love that. And I appreciate that so much about El Nutra um, because I think that a lot of people missed that point when, you know, we entered into this fasting, you know, I'll call it a fasting fad because so many people dove into it quickly, but then stopped, they jumped. And I think because they didn't understand all these important aspects of the fasting, what it's doing to the body. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, and I think it's important for people to understand these other reasons so that it becomes a lifestyle as well, that it just gets incorporated. It's just what we do. It's almost like a religion where in a lot of religions, fasting is incorporated into it, um, you know, for different reasons. But I mean, at least it's a reason that people can hang on to and be consistent with it. And I know when I attended Dr. Clapper's uh, uh, workshop in California several years ago, he even said, you know, True North is a fasting center, but it's not the fasting itself that reverses the chronic disease. It's the re-entry into life after fasting. And it's the ways that people learned how to cook while they were fasting. So they would attend cooking classes at the center. They would learn what real food was versus refined processed food. And it was that because if they were to go home and just go back to the regular lifestyle, they would see the, re the flaring up of their chronic illnesses. But if they incorporate 
this eating well, cooking well with real foods, that is where the true healing comes from. So that's a point that I really want to stress for listeners as well. And I'm just really glad that you brought that up. So can we jump into the difference between um, why does El Nutra do the fasting mimicking versus just the hardcore fasting? Yeah, I think the, you know, it really uh, hits the core of, of sort of uh, having safety in mind, right? Mm-hmm. So, and also having pragmatism in mind. Um, look, um, it's difficult to skip a meal, let alone fast for five days. Yeah. <laughs> the number of people that we can help um, will jump up exponentially if we give people a way where we can mimic a fast instead of asking them to do three to five days of fasting. Now, it's not only just a preference issue, there are real reasons why not to do a prolonged or periodic fast. When I think about people with underlying conditions, it may not be the safest thing to do. And think about in our uh, our American culture, those who are 50 years and older, many of us carry a chronic illness or two or three Mm -hmm. or four. And so which makes um, this opportunity to improve your own health, to support your health in limits to people who are only healthy. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and that's completely um, it's, it's, there's a lot of risk, right. To ask these people to just go on a, on a, on a, on a fast for days, not to mention um, it takes a tremendous willpower, right. Think about it. (laughs) Yeah. And I find meeting people at a place, I mean, it's obviously been studied for nearly two decades, you know, that, and probably longer, we we can't lie to ourselves. We know people have been studying all sorts of things, but we tend to look at the recent research. Um, But it has been studied that we still can enter into the fasting state through this mimicking effect and giving people, and I know for myself, I don't know if I would have lasted five days with no food. I don't know. And really because I'm busy, I'm running multiple businesses. I have three kids and I didn't have time, you know, to focus on my mental state around that to be like, okay, let's just sit and figure out why do I need this food right now? Like it takes a concerted effort to navigate all the different emotions and, and also physical changes that are coming up when you are entering into a full fast. So it does take time and patience that I don't think I had, but I was able to do it. And I would say quite easily, um, you know, because of the fact that I always knew I could look forward to my soup or the little crackers yeah. or, you know, you know the, even the olives, I remember just being so grateful for three olives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it you know, the, the fasting mimicking diet is a five day structural meal plan yeah. and you just eat everything that's in the box and all you need is add water and, 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 and yeah. you know, cook for some of the, 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 the soups on, on stovetop but nothing else. Uh, so you don't have to go shopping. There's no shopping list. It's really with a pragmatic approach here. Uh, yeah. You can proportion, you know, you, you could kind of separate your bars from your soup so that throughout the day, you have something to fill your stomach. And yet, you know, the studies uh, have shown, studies have shown that it, it does generate the four benefits that I talked about, right? From yeah. The, the weight loss that's mainly fat driven to behavior change to cellular impact uh, to to mental health and so 
Yeah, I felt great while I was doing it. And um, yeah, definitely I would do it again. And now that even just had having, having done this show with you, um, I know just a few more things that are definitely motivating well, a lot more that are motivating me to do it again. What I loved about the program as well is how you had the we you have access to a staff at Elton Nutra who's going to sit with you and answer all your questions and talk to you about why you're doing this. And I think that is an amazing service. You, you're you're still providing that. Yeah, we do have the coaches, so they are free to, yeah. to, to our consumers. And they just walk you through um, the, that five-day journey, explain what's in the box, and, and help you to, to really answer um, the questions you have about uh, the, the, this, this entire uh, fast-moving diet journey. Amazing. So I have a specific question, just diving back into the science a little bit more. So one of the you know, pieces we read a lot about when it comes to longevity is about our uh, telomerase or telomeres, depending how you want to pr uh, pronounce it. And so uh, can we just jump into that a little bit more? Because I think it's very interesting for people to understand what they are, what they signify in the body and how fasting mimicking has an effect on them. Yeah, yeah this, this is an area of intense investigation for us. It's a mm -hmm. priority for, for us as well. Um, there, is, there are many studies showing that fasting could impact the lifespan of animals. Right? For example, in animal models, uh, in rodents, I mean, you think that by starving them, you're going to make them die off, right? <laughs> it actually elongates their life by 30 to 50%. I mean, that's, 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 that's the intersection between nutrition, fasting, and longevity. Um, I, I think, uh, uh, Nicola, what you're bringing out is is the passion and the commitment we have at Onutra to really look into uh, the implication um, into science, uh, into longevity. It's an area where we are continuing to put a lot of efforts to, to, to run studies to answer the very questions you have. But at this moment, I think uh, we're waiting for some exciting results to come forth. Okay, so so right now we can't exactly say we're still a little bit early on that studies need to be done and this is so as far as funding goes who are who is funding these studies around longevity. Um, because we know that it's super expensive, incredibly expensive to run clinical yeah. trials. Somebody has to be benefiting on the on the outside of this. So I'm really yeah. curious about this side. Well, actually, if you think about, I mean, the, the biggest funders of research in El Nutra is actually the federal government, the National Institutes of Health. In fact, okay. the National Institutes of Aging has funded uh, many of Professor Walter Longo's work. And, and because you think about it, if we are able to use food as medicine to help support healthy aging lifestyle, what a goal, right, for the mm -hmm. nation, what a goal for 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 the clinical community, what a goal for us, the, the common folks, right? And, and uh, I think this is very much in line with, with every public policy is not to come up with more expensive drugs, but rather how do we use lifestyle? How do we leverage the mechanism that's already inside our body to support a healthy longevity lifestyle? 
Yeah. And when we talk about longevity as well, we're talking about living long and dying short. It's about living a long life free of these chronic diseases. How do we live our healthiest life possible versus living just to expand lifespan? Like what, for example, you know, medicine is incredible in how we can you know, prevent someone from dying when they're on an operating operating table. There's that kind of longevity, like can we keep them alive a month or three longer or a couple of years longer? But we're talking about with this work that we're doing around fasting, fasting, mimicking, um, and the research in longevity, it's about how do we keep people disease free? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the word that we love to use is, is the word health span, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we live longer healthy as opposed to being sick? Yes. And, and Elnitra's mission really is to add life, the quality of life to life, right? Longevity yeah. life. And now it's, it remains a company aspiration. It's a mission we want to drive towards. And we're hoping that through more research and development, we can bring to the world more solutions mm -hmm. and more research uh, towards that goal. Now, Talking about the research, with any research study, there are limitations, obviously, but even within fasting. So what are some of the limitations that we're seeing in this field? Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about this before we started, started recording, but, you know, these uh, limitations where our bodies are incredible at healing themselves, like just incredible. We give them the right nutrients, we take away the things that are creating harm, and then the body will just, um, you know, you know, let's call it chief homeostasis, but this sense of balance where, you know, the absence of disease, and then the presence of good, healthy life. So where is that finite point where the body can only do so much, but we need to jump in? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, uh, here we're not talking about products. I want to be very clear here. Yes. We're talking about research and, and some sort of the vision we have exactly. is, you know, how do we continue to leverage this? And through the proper regulatory pathways right, that FDA has laid out for us, how do we take a technology such as fasting, limiting diet and push the envelope? Right now on the product side, sporting healthy, uh, health and wellness. But how can Elnitra, as a Nutratech company, take the technology, tweak it, obviously, intensify it, put more resources onto it? How do we understand uh, if and how a process such as fasting and fasting mimicking can help to play a role in the mitigation, prevention, treatment of a disease? Now, is there a limit? We don't know, right? We have to ask the question, you know, can we reverse in, 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 instead of just simply stabilizing a biomarker, can we change the trajectory of a condition through this process? These are actually really critical questions. You know, uh, you, know, uh, we, you know, when we have a cut on the skin, what do you do? You don't do much, keep it clean the skin grows back, yeah. right? So the question here is, how do we leverage some of those innate body's ability for self-healing, for modification, right? Can fasting play a role? Can fasting mimicking, mimicking a technology play a role? That is the, the bright future of, of our, our research focus. 
Yeah, and I imagine too, there's the, and I don't know, maybe you can tell me, I would imagine that right now it is very much an individualized uh, experience right now. When you do this, this is you, you're doing it in your own home. But I'm also curious about the implication it has for a greater society with just how we structure our businesses, how we structure our schools, you know, how can this be brought in into more and, and make it more of a socially acceptable process so that we it's just embedded I mean three meals a day never used to be three meals a day in the world you know this was a human construct that would said eat breakfast lunch and dinner you know and then sometimes we move to eat five small meals a day and then you know so so what are your thoughts on that for how it can be implemented on more of a larger I, I think yeah, I think we have we have many step, steps we, we still have yet to, to, right. to take you know I think we have to generate enough clinical trial evidence, I think that's definitely number one. But in addition to that, science alone can change, cannot change society. Mm -hmm. Think about smoking. Think about this uh, anti-smoking uh, movement. It, it, you know, we've known for, for years, for decades, that smoking is bad for us. But now in, in the US, we've reduced the smoking rate from about 50% down to a little bit lo less than 20%. How do we how do we get that happen to happen? It's not just the science, right? It took it took what it took it took, you know, a lot of public service announcement. It took lots of education at school. It takes a picture on the cigarettes with warnings. It takes taxation to <laughs> to do that. It took lots of celebrity coming out. It took Hollywood collaborating so they they, they don't put put very handsome men and beautiful women smoking on screen. Or young people to watch. Look at how many things have to come together yeah. for social movement to be to be incorporated, and and so we're at this very early stage, right? Yeah. We're doing the right thing. Beyond asking what should we eat, we're asking maybe when should we eat, mm -hmm. right? We begin to introduce the idea of fasting. As, as being a period where the body needs time break yeah. away from, from food. Now we're asking the right question. Now we do more research. And, and the, the comforting thing, uh, uh, thing is, if you were to look at the number of trials being conducted on, on fasting right now, every year there are more than the year before. Yeah. And, and it's going in exponential fashion. Yeah. So we know that it's before, before long, we're going to have more and more uh, uh, evidence, but education, like what you're doing, Nicolette, through this podcast and, and, and getting the words out, I think that's very important. Yeah. And, and sooner or later, organizations, societies, governments, policies, guidelines will, be, will, will come based on the evidence of, of, of research. And hopefully uh, we can contribute to, to improving the health of, uh, on the population level through all these mechanisms. Yeah, one way that I really think that for anybody who's listening to this and is to A, share the podcast with other people, of course, so introduce people uh, to these concepts, but also uh, one of the ways that it could be introduced just on, and I'm just thinking out loud here, is even within schools or as a parent, I don't know, do you have children, Dr. Shu? Yes, I do. Yeah, and, and they're so all grown up. Uh, but <laughs> oh, good. So yeah, so we're still adults. 
nice. So we're still in the phase, like we have three kids and our youngest is 10, where I still find myself saying like, eat, eat, eat. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned through looking at all the fasting mimicking research and the fasting research is that I'm like, you know what, what if we just went easier on our kids to say like, you know what, eat when you're hungry. And what I've noticed is my kids will naturally fast. They'll wake up. They don't like eating breakfast right away first thing in the morning. And so, you know, we give them their breakfast. Often they'll carry it in the car to school. And sometimes they don't eat their breakfast until the first snack. And then they don't eat lunch sometimes. And, but what I find sometimes find is that the teachers are like, well, you must eat. And they write us notes like she didn't eat lunch. And I'm like, it's okay. She ate her breakfast snack. Like I'm, I'm not concerned that my kid's going to starve. And at the end of the day, and it's, interesting to watch as well you know the kids eat through the season so that there's you know I've seen them go through periods of not eating very much but then all of a sudden eating a ton and I love watching the kids as they sort and they sort of fatten up their faces become pudgier and their bellies become pudgier but then they shoot up two or three inches and then they become very lean right so one of the ways that we could potentially start looking at how this could be a societal practice is simply by just letting our kids decide, you know, when they're really hungry um, and just going, I don't know, it's just a thought and how in schools, teachers just let up a little bit, you know, if the kid's not hungry, we don't need to force feed them and tell them it's 12 o'clock and you need to eat. Um, so that's just one area because we have enough research to support that, you know, missing a meal or two here and there is not going to kill us. In fact, it's probably going to make us a little bit stronger. And that fact is probably even more applicable, applicable to adults, right? Yes. <laughs> think about, we probably don't need, uh, and in fact, I think we started the podcast uh, talking about overnutrition. We talk yeah. about, you know, having too much. And, and um, I think as a society, it's, it's a good point, uh, you know, uh, when fasting now is backed up by more and more, and more signs, it's not, um, it's not if, we should fast, but how? Yeah, exactly. And so what I know, one thing I do have to bring up is, you know, it does cost money to do the fasting mimicking diet, right? So there is a price tag to it because A, there's so much research behind it. It's a beautiful product The you know, it, it's very well designed. It, clearly, we looked at the behavior of individuals. Um, you looked at the behavior of individuals in creating the box to make it so easy to use. So there's a price tag that's going to come with that. So what advice do you have for people, though, and often, and I've seen this, I get a lot of clients that, you know, no. their budget for food is $79 a week. So what can people do who just do not have the money to afford the very, product? Very good question. I think starts, uh, let's start with a shorter fast, right? Start with intermittent fasting. Now, I, I will be the first to say intermittent fasting doesn't give you the same benefits as a prolonged or periodic fasting for the reason okay. we explained earlier but it still can support weight loss. It can still help to support your metabolism. And, um, and the easiest place to start is what I call circadian fasting, right? Meaning like throughout ages before we invented the electricity, what do people do when the sun rises, we wake up, when the sun sets, we sleep and we don't eat in the dark, okay? Let's go back to that. Everybody, without, you know, with no regards to most of your most, not all, but most of your health conditions, a 12 hour overnight fast is very acceptable. 
meaning that 12 hours, you know, no food, at least start with that. And that doesn't cost any dollars. I would even venture to say, you know, if you do 14 hour of, of 14 hours of fast per, per 24 hour cycle, is not a very stressful thing to do. Okay. Okay. So like, and, and we do this most, if you eat dinner at six o'clock, you don't eat breakfast until eight o'clock, right? So, or, 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 or if you do, I mean, actually that's not 14 hours, but, but think about, you know, a little bit, you know, something like that. Some, some people do it a little seven o'clock and then, you know, do nine o'clock, something like that. But it, it's very meaningful. If it's less than 14 hours, generally it doesn't generate enough stress in the body to cause, um, um, you know, continuous stress. Once you go fast beyond 14 hours, like 16A, a very popular um, uh, fasting regimen, it is stress now, you create some stress. The question that we, we don't know yet is, is that 16A good every day for 365 days? Right. Is it enough stress or too much stress? Right. We know for sure the circadian fasting when the sun rises and when sun sets, that 12-12 is what everybody should do. Maybe 14-10 is okay. Yeah. Right. But when you start going to 16-8, that's when you have to ask. And the science is not out there yet, is is this good long term for right. a year, for two years, through three years? every day having that stress, right? And so, so I, I think, you know, for, for your listeners who cannot, who doesn't want to jump into a fasting mimicking diet, I would say, start with circadian fasting. Mm, Eliminate like those diet uh, consumption and the hours that you should not be consuming. Gradually push the hours a little longer, 10 hours to 12 hours to 14 hours. And then you have to assess your situation, whether 16A, 18-6 is right for you. And is there anybody who should absolutely not be fasting? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, there's a couple of precautions, I think, in general, right? In general, if you have any kind of conditions, for example, if you're taking insulin, you got to talk to your physician, Yeah. okay? That is something that you shouldn't do it on your own. If you're taking multiple shots of insulin, you have to adjust your insulin doses, number yeah. one, right? If you have a heart condition where stress may not be the best thing for your heart, you got to talk to your doctor. Yeah. Huh? If you're if you're struggling with eating disorder, this is fasting is not one you should try on your own. This is something you should really discuss with your therapist before jumping into it. Uh, there are a few other categories. For example, people who are really, who are elderly and frail, fasting is probably not the right intervention, yeah. right, for that age or maybe very young child. Uh, I think all these extremes in the life cycles really deserves a, 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 a good conversation with your, with your healthcare provider. Good, I'm glad that we brought that up because it is important to know because I think everybody hears something, they wanna just jump right in, but you have to look at yourself first as you know, who are you as an individual? You know, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Is it right for me? And it's okay to start asking those questions and lead with that first, as opposed to just diving in and doing it. Um, but if you do feel that it is right for you, I really encourage everyone to do the Omnitra program. I'm not getting paid by the company at all to say this, uh, no commissions whatsoever. Um, but I just absolutely, I truly do love the research. Um, I always lead with research first. Uh, I like to also know what research is coming down the line. 
line because just because something hasn't been proven yet, it doesn't, it's usually only because the research just hasn't been done yet. So you can even ask those questions, but I really encourage you to, um, you know, and if money is an issue, then what you can do is ask for all your birthday and Christmas presents for one or two years, all to be thrown into this um, so that you can at least do it for the, for the three months. Is that correct? Doing it for three good solid months would be. Yeah, I think for, for most people um, having just that five day of fast uh, yeah. in a three month cycle can, uh, can work very well to support your uh, wellness. Okay. For those with very specific metabolic needs and goals, I think there are other regimens, but but I think every, it's like every seasonal cleanse, if you will, I, I often call that. That's a seasonal cleanse for our body. Nice. I love that. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being on this show. Do you want to uh, give us some links that we can follow? What's the best yeah, one that we so, can follow you um, and Alnutra? I think for general information about fasting, there's a good website called fasting.com uh, that can, you can get a lot of sort of general information. Uh, for a product specific, if you wanted to learn about our periodic or prolonged fasting, uh, you please go to prolongfmd.com. That's a product website. For the company uh, behind all the research and the invention of the fasting mimicking diet, you could go to L dash. So is it, it's a it's a simple dash uh, nutra n u t r a dot com. Perfect, perfect. And definitely we'll put the uh, links in there for Dr. Walter Longo's work. We'll throw in some of the uh, articles as well so people can just click on the link. And, um, and I look really forward to following this research because I think it's absolutely, truly fascinating. We have still so much to learn about it, but I know that the, I, I have a feeling that the outcomes are gonna be um, quite profound as they already have been. So thank you for all the time that your team and you have been putting towards this uh, because it is important information. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for your audience for spending the time with us. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it, folks. Dr. William Chu teaching you everything you need to know about fasting, mimicking, and longevity and health. And remember, at the basis of all of this, there's never going to be one pill wonder program that is going to solve all of your health issues. Remember, if you're doing fasting mimicking, what is just as important as the fasting program is what do you do outside of the fasting? What foods are you fueling your body with? And please, if you can buy them organic, buy them organic. Predominantly plant-strong foods is going to be really important where all the fats and the salts and the sugars are intact with the fiber within the whole food itself. It's really important to remember that because that is what you are going to be able to eat for the rest of your life and have those foods. Make sure that you are chronic disease-free. Wouldn't that be amazing? Tons of energy, no pain, flexibility throughout your bodies. Your body regenerates really, really fast because you're triggering your stem cells to activate and cause regeneration in your body. This is what we're after, folks. We're not just after hitting the baseline and just trying to survive and get through the day. We are after thriving and growing and expanding um, and expanding our body's ability to be this limitless energy temple that it is. So 
get out there, listen to this podcast again, share it with other people. You know how important that is. There could be somebody, somebody at work, somebody at school, one of your family members that absolutely needs to hear this podcast that we just did with Dr. William Shu. Share it with them because it literally could transform their life. And of course, before we end, I just want to remind you all to head over to greenmustache.com. That's our collection of plant-based whole food restaurants, 100% organic all the time. And check out our plant-based whole food chef certification program. So if you know a chef out there that is working in a restaurant, or if you know a restaurant owner that really is just kind of following the fad trends, food trends, you know, they're throwing an impossible burger on their menu. Maybe it's beyond meat burger, deep fried cauliflower, deep fried uh, Brussels sprouts, and you know that they could do better, but they just don't know how, because they just don't have the vast amount of information that they need to be able to create healthy meals. Then please send them to us directly, share the link with them on our website. It's down below in the show notes and send it to them so they can participate in our plant-based whole food chef certification program. So they start creating food that heals instead of food that harms. And it's really important that we all band together to help these restaurants understand how to create healthy food because we live in an era where majority of people are eating out multiple times a day, let alone multiple times a week or a month. And so it's important that these restaurants are creating healthy food so that you and I and our loved ones, and especially all of those individuals that are battling a chronic health condition like diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and autoimmune disorders and gut health issues, mental health issues, that they can get access to clean, real food. So not food that is smothered in oil and sugar and salt and preservatives and, you know, and all the other refined products that most restaurants are cooking are using in their ingredient line. So we want to change that and you can help us do that. So please share this podcast, share our website link, and we'll see you next time on the Eat Real to Heal podcast. Bye for now.